Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show brought to you from the home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. In this episode, Hannah McInnes talks to the legendary conservationist and anthropologist, Dr. Jane Goodall. At the age of 87, she continues her lifelong work advocating for the natural world and is the godmother to a new generation of climate activists. Dr. Goodall spoke to Hannah about the Book of Hope, a survival guide for an endangered planet. I think you're joining us just to sort of establish where you are in the house that you grew up in. And I know this last year has been particularly strange for someone who, if I'm right in thinking, travels the world 300 days of the year and has not really spent since 1986 more than three weeks in one place. That's exactly right. And then since the, you know, the lockdowns began, since COVID-19 hit us, I've been here. It's the longest I've been home since I left school. (laughs) Fortunately, the house was kept up because my sister came to live here with her family, her daughter and her two grown grandsons. So I've been here with them since the pandemic began. And I know that you have, despite that, been busier than you've ever been. Um, and the, the book, which is one of the many things that you've been sort of working on in this time, is based on conversations with Douglas Abrams. And it focuses largely on your reason, reasons for hope, of course. But interwoven, there is so much about your extraordinary life. Um, so I wonder if we could begin there for people who, who don't know, and even for those who know a, a bit, talking about being in your, in your family home. Do you think that the life you went on to lead was sort of on the cards from an early age? I know you loved stories of people who you've sort of now turned into. So Dr. Doolittle was one of them. Yes, Dr. Doolittle. And of course, when I was growing up, it was a long time ago, and uh, there was no television. There were books. So I learned from, you know, I was born loving animals, and I was born into a, an amazing family of people. And... So I learned from being outside in nature, and I learned from books. And you mentioned Dr. Doolittle, and then along came Tarzan when I was 10. And of course, I I knew perfectly well there wasn't a Tarzan or a Dr. Doolittle, but those two books gave me this dream. I'm going to grow up, go to Africa, live with wild animals, and write books about them. And the amazing thing was, my mother was the only person who didn't laugh. She just said, if you want to do something like this, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And then if you don't give up, you may find a way. Everybody else was laughing at me. You can't do that. You don't have money. World War II was still raging at the time. And you're just a girl. Back then, for a girl to do something like that was totally unheard of. I want to come back to your mum because she really has a a huge part to play in in your life and what you went on to do but you de- and you dedicate the book to mum rusty the dog um, louis leakey and david graybeard perhaps we could just start with louis leakey you say he's a true was a true giant of a man and he essentially bestowed on you this experience, which, as you say, was not the usual thing to bestow upon a young woman. But he had this wise notion that, that you might do better than scientists. And I wonder if you could explain why. Yes, well, you know, finally I saved up money. Actually, 
through waitressing around the corner in a hotel. I'd done a secretarial course, but then you couldn't save much money working in London, which I was. And so I came home and saved up the money in that hotel over there and got out to Africa to stay with a school friend. That was the opportunity. And that's where I met Louis Leakey, famous paleontologist, anthropologist. Somebody said, Jane, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Lewis. So I went to meet him. He was curator of the Natural History Museum. And he took me all around and asked me many, many questions. I think he was really impressed that I knew so much about African animals as well. There wasn't much to learn in those days. And so that led to him offering me this extraordinary opportunity to go and learn about not just any animal, but the one most like us. At that time, ethology, the study of behavior in animals, was just beginning. And it was a very reductionist sort of science at the time. And the early ethologists uh, in Britain, and well, in Europe, were trying to make it into a hard science. Facts, 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 numbers, numbers, numbers. Ethology cannot be a hard science. And Leakey felt that as I hadn't been to university, I hadn't learned this, that maybe my mind was uncluttered by that reductionist way of thinking. He also felt women might have more patience. Mm -hmm. And so I got this amazing, incredible opportunity. There's a wonderful, and sorry, Lewis, I, I was calling him Louis. I obviously, I went to <laughs> European. There, there's a wonderful moment on a recent one of your hope casts, which is another thing you've been doing in lockdown, where you're talking to Dave Matthews. And um, you certainly don't hold back in this notion, as you say, that you were taught and told that to be a good scientist, you can't have empathy with the animal you're studying. You've got to be cold and objective. And you say that is rubbish. In fact, you use a word I'm not even sure I could say on this <laughs> Zoom, on this Zoom meeting. But I mean, you felt that that was just an, a very, very misguided idea. Well, I felt it. I mean, I didn't actually learn about that until I eventually got to Cambridge, which was when I'd been with the chimps over a year and already learned something about them. I mean, nobody had studied them in the world before. I was number one. And so when the Cambridge professors told me, you shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names. That's not scientific. They should have numbers. You can't talk about their personalities, their minds capable of decision-making, and you certainly can't talk about their emotions because those are unique to us. Mm. And you cannot have empathy because... You've got to be coldly objective in order to be scientific. Mm -hmm. And it was actually being taught at that time that the difference between us and all other animals was one of kind, not degree. We were separate, totally separate. There was an unbridgeable chasm between us and even our closest living relatives, the great apes. Well, fortunately, when I, you know, I, I didn't confront the professors, but I went on talking about what I'd seen, what I knew about animals from my childhood teacher, my dog, Rusty. I knew the professors were wrong, but I didn't challenge them. That's never been my way. I just went on talking about what I'd seen. And then the geographic sent filmmaker, photographer, Hugo van Lauwig, and his film came out. And so people had to believe and it's totally true that because we now know chimps share 98.7% of our DNA, 
And because of all the behavior that I was showing and Hugo was illustrating, it gradually changed science, the way of ethology, thinking about animals. So now, now we acknowledge we're not the only sentient, sapient beings. And I, I want to discuss with you more about animal sentience, which is a very current topic being talked at a, about a lot, I think, all, all across the world, in this country, it being debated in Parliament. But just to go back um, still to, to the sort of unravelling or, or, or how your life then progressed, you mentioned your mum, and you say in the book, the whole expedition just wouldn't have been possible without her. Perhaps people don't know that she accompanied you when you first went out to Gonby. Yes, that always sounds as though poor little Jane has to have mummy. It wasn't like that at all. Leakey had two problems when he wanted to send me out. One, how to get money for this young girl straight from England with no science training. Finally, he got it from a philanthropic owner of a business, but only for six months. Second problem, at that time, Tanzania was Tanganyika. It was one of the last outposts of the crumbling British Empire, taken over from Germany after World War One, And so the British authorities said, we're not going to take responsibility for a young girl. But Lewis persisted, and in the end, they said, oh, well, yes, but she must come with some European female companion. So mum volunteered to come. I think Lewis twisted her arm a little, but she was invaluable. I mean, the main thing she did for me was to support me, to boost my morale, because for the first four months, the chimps ran away. They're very conservative. They'd never seen a white ape before. And she was there in the evening when I, cause I went up every morning before light and came down when it was just dark and depressed. And she said, but Jane, you're learning more than you think. You found that peak. You've got your binoculars. You're learning about the foods they eat, the calls they make, the kind of groups they travel around in. And how they make their nests, bending over the branches of the trees at night. So she really helped to boost my morale. I wonder if you could explain how it was that you had what you call your Damascus moment, really, that, that turned this love and studying of, of the chimps into a, a kind of wider desire to spread the message of hope and, and also a wake-up call around the world, which you've really been doing ever since. Well, it happened when I did finally get my PhD in spite of everything and built up a research station at Gombe. The research carries on. But it was a big conference that I helped to organize in 1986. And by then there were six other chimp study sites. We brought the scientists together, mainly to talk about, you know, does chimp behavior change in different environments and so on. But we had a session on conservation and a session on conditions in some captive situations. And seeing that right across Africa where chimps were being studied, their numbers were dwindling and forests were disappearing. And seeing secretly filmed footage of our closest living relatives who can live for 60 years in cages five foot by five foot alone in medical research labs. So I went to that science conference as, as a scientist. I left as an activist. It was four days long. And people say, well, it must have been a hard decision. It wasn't a decision. And I call it my Damascus moment because St. Paul uh, left wherever he left from, I don't know, Jerusalem or something. 
and he left as one of the main persecutors of the early Christians and something happened to him on the road to Damascus so that when he arrived he had changed totally and he became one of the people who went around trying to convert people to Christianity. So it just happened. I, I just knew I had to do something to try and help, but I didn't know what to do. I mean, you've been giving talks to thousands and thousands of people ever since you said at the start, you know, without a moment's break, just all around the world. And there's a lovely kind of insight into the book into how that wasn't a natural thing, you know, initially to do. You talk about the, the first speeches that you did being absolutely terrified. Yes, I mean, right from the beginning, I knew I could write. I mean, that was what I wanted to do, go to Africa and write books about wild animals. That I knew I could do. I've been writing stories since I was, I guess, five. I have some that I dictated to my mother when I was five. But speaking, I never spoke at school. I was really, really, really shy. And the first talk I had to give, I swear, for the first 10 minutes, I couldn't breathe although nobody noticed, so I suppose that wasn't true. But And then suddenly I found, it's okay, they're listening to me, I can do it. And, you know, from then on, I mean, I found I had a gift not only for communication with words, written, but also speaking. And, of course, I worked on both. I mean, you don't just take something for granted and say, oh, that's fine. No, you work to get better and better and better and better, which I did. But I had the gift to start with. And obviously we're all very grateful that you that you carried on. And I'm really interested talking about sort of public speaking and about language, you know, around this issue of hope. We don't deny that we're in a very sort of troublesome situation when it comes to the climate and the environment. And I think the good thing is everybody is sort of on the same page in their worries about that. Often the language around climate and uh, the worries about it, about climate change, is quite terrifying language that people use. It's apocalyptic in most cases. I was reading something the other day where somebody said, you know, Martin Luther King, who of course galvanized millions to his cause, said, I have a dream. He didn't say, I have a nightmare. And I'm interested to know your thoughts on, on the right language to use. And of course, you know, the answer is hopefully in the Book of Hope, but whether you think the apocalyptic and very worrying language perhaps make people turn their heads away and, and sort of bury their heads in the sand. Well, it has had that effect on many, many people. I've met so many people who feel hopeless and helpless and they see the world as a, as a mess and um, there's nothing they can do about it. And the world, as you've said, it is, we're in very, very dark place right now. But unless you also talk about the way out of the darkness at the same time. So, yes, let people understand how bad it is, because it is bad, but then there's a way out. And without that way out, then you leave people just curling into themselves and giving up and doing nothing. And that leads to the end for us, if everybody does that. So that's why... I've always been talking about hope. And, you know, I've just, since writing the book, I've thought of another way of describing hope. And it's as though we're in a very, very dark tunnel, quite a long tunnel. And right at the very end, there's a little light. But between us and that light, 
There are so many obstacles and problems. That little light is hope. If we just sit and think with rose-coloured spectacles, well, it's going to be all right. Somehow it has to be. I have faith. I believe in God. It's going to be all right. Then we're doomed. But if you take the action necessary and you climb those hurdles and you go around and under and over, you finally reach the hope. So hope is all about taking action, not sitting and waiting for something to happen. And that, I suppose, is as you discuss in the book, the difference between hope and optimism. Yes. Yes, an optimistic person might just say, oh, it's going to be fine. I don't need to do anything. Other people will do it. A lot of people think other people can do it. But, um, you know, the whole reason I started our youth program, which you probably want to talk about later, but uh, was because I was meeting so many young people who'd lost hope and said, well, we feel like this because you've compromised our future and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, if our young people lose hope, sink into apathy and do nothing, we're doomed, aren't we? I do want to talk about um, young people. They're one of your four reasons for hope. But just leading into that conversation is this idea that you said there are lots of obstacles in the way. And your main message that you take around the world is that we each of us have a role to play, no matter how small. And every day, every single one of us makes an impact upon the planet. And the cumulative effect of small actions that we all take will make a difference. And I, I just wonder how you stop people from feeling helpless and that their small acts don't make a difference because we need many of us feel something bigger that we have to kind of wait for governments we have to wait for big business to to get on board and that does make people feel that each individual thing they do it's very easy to feel that won't make a difference yes i know and if it was just you picking up trash or saving water electricity biking instead of going in a car or whatever little thing you do. If it was just you, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. But if it's hundreds, then thousands, then millions of people all living ethical lives, making ethical choices each day, like what do you buy? That's as simple as that. If it harmed the environment, don't buy it. If it was led to cruelty to animals like factory farmed meat and eggs and milk, don't buy it. If it's cheap because of unfair wages or forced labor, don't buy it. But you see, in order for everybody to make those decisions, which more and more people are, you have to eliminate poverty. Mm. Because if you're living in deep poverty, you have to do whatever it takes to keep yourself and your family alive. You have to cut down the trees. You know it's going to lead to soil erosion, but you need the land to grow food for your family or to get charcoal to sell. And if you're in an urban area, you're going to buy the cheapest junk food. You can't afford to ask those questions Mm -hmm. because you've got to survive somehow. Mm -hmm. So solving one problem very often highlights another problem. But quite honestly, the answer to this feeling of helplessness, which I've, you know, explained to so many people, just think, okay, You must have heard the saying, think globally, act locally, right? I was just going to come to your your renewed version. (laughs) Yeah. Act locally. Act locally first. Think of what you can do, something you care about in your community. 
and hopefully you have a little group that can work with you because that always makes it much better. And then when you know that there are people all around the world, which there are doing little things like that, then you dare think globally. And so here's where the media should be playing a much different role. And yes, they need to tell us about the dark side. They, we, we need to know. We can't hide from it. We're in a bad spot. But I, traveling around the world, as I have been lucky enough to do, I've met so many amazing projects and so many incredible people. And if the media just would spend time explaining how, with time or with help, an area that's been totally destroyed, like totally, all the living things gone, but it can come, nature will reclaim it. Mm. And animals and plants can start recolonizing. And, you know, media needs to tell, spend more time talking about the incredible people doing wonderful things. And that includes children. And exactly. The resilience of nature is one of your other four pillars of, of hope. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about this, the idea that poverty just must be tackled first and foremost, because we still do live in a in a world where worrying about climate is is just something that you can do if you have the time and the money and it's just not something. And hopefully we want to move towards a world where that is something that is much more inclusive of everybody, those sorts of ways of living in a greener way. And you say exactly, there are so many things across the world to take heart from and your relationships with young people is really one of those things. And uh, I've been listening, as I said, to the hope cast and hearing these people so young, 12, 13 call in from across the world to sort of talk about how you've inspired them it's no wonder that they are a great source of hope to you. I wonder, though, can they really create change? Do you feel they can? Because obviously they're not in positions of power yet. I know they can because they are. And the point is, we're now in, well, I think it's over 65 countries, hundreds and thousands of groups. And because I learned about the interconnection of things out in the rainforest, you know, every plant and animal species having a role to play in this beautiful living tapestry. We decided when Roots and Toots began with 12 high school students in Tanzania in 1991, we decided, okay, every group will do three projects between them, one to help people, one to help other animals, one to help the environment, because it's all so interconnected. And it doesn't mean that every child must do all three, but they must share the information. So what began with 12 high school students now has members from even some preschool, lots of kindergarten, very strong in university, everything in between. More and more people who are actually, you know, like members of staff of a big corporation, but basically for youth. And what the young people are doing, the numbers of trees they've planted, the people that they've inspired, the parents and grandparents whom they have changed. I'll give you one story here. I was talking to a CEO of a big, uh, big corporation. He was in Singapore, actually. And his company has worked really, really hard to be totally zero emission and, you know, off the grid and everything. And he said, there were three reasons why we changed. Firstly, we saw the writing on the wall. We saw that if we continue to use up finite natural resources at the pace that we are, as we 
stupidly put GDP growth ahead of protecting the environment. If we go on doing that, that's the end of our business. Secondly, consumer pressure. People are more and more demanding ethically produced products. But he said what finally tipped the balance for me was a few years ago when my daughter, who was about 10 years old, I think, she came home from school and she said, Daddy, they tell me at school that what you're doing is, is hurting the environment. Is that true? Because that's my environment. I, I'm growing up into that. Is that true, Daddy? And he said, that was it. I love that story, many stories that you tell. And there's a wonderful story. I think you told it perhaps on a recent podcast of when the CEOs of some oil companies were investing in roots and shoots and you told them what that meant. I said, you realize, I mean, they were supporting it. They were giving us money because they are actually trying to do pretty well, but you know, they're not there yet. And it was in China, actually. And I said, you do realize that all these young people who you're supporting are being educated to absolutely shun the products that you're producing from oil and gas. And he thanked me. I mean, there was a bit of a silence. I was talking to all the top executives of that company, but um, he thanked me. He said, you've made us think even more deeply than we were before. I love that story. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. Um, we talked a bit about animal sentience earlier. I was saying that, of course, you, you were one of the first people or the first person that made people understand that animals feel much more than until then people felt that they did and we're becoming much more aware of that um, and you say in the book we must face up to the problems you know caused by this factory farming by 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 farming really by just uh, turning animals into something that we put all over the land without much thought for their well-being but I, I wonder if I could just put a quandary to you which is if we want to obviously for the sake of the planet for the sake of the animals move away from from farming them in these ways which of course we do what what is it that we should hope for or encourage because if we moved away entirely from from meat eating as a population what happens then to the hope i suppose uh, of the people whose livelihoods are in farming uh, and albeit farming perhaps in a more local and more animal compassionate way well, you know, my real problem is with the factory farms and the factory farms raising animals for food or for milk or for dairy because the conditions are so... I don't know, have you personally watched any of the secretly filmed footage? Because it's completely disturbing. It's so terrible. And when you think that each one of those animals 
is a personality and they have feelings, they have fear and pain. And when I learned about factory farms, I think when I first went to Africa in 1960, we didn't have any in England. I hadn't heard about them. And then I read Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation, about the factory farms. And I was utterly, utterly shocked. And the next time I looked at a piece of meat on my plate, I thought, this is symbolic of fear, pain, death. And that was it. I didn't eat any more. I have become vegan since being on lockdown here because my niece is a great cook and she's vegan too. On tour, it's difficult to be vegan, but I've been vegetarian for forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we, if, if we're going to eat animals, and some people have to, and then we need animals who have a decent life before they're killed. But, you, you know, you said something so important about what do we do about the people who make their living from this kind of farming. We have to find alternative ways for them to make a living. This is how we protect the chimps in Africa. When I had that conference, I thought I need to go out to Africa and find out firsthand what the problems facing the chimps are. And I got money to go to six of the range countries. And I learned about the chimp problems, yes. But I also learned about the plight faced by so many of the African people living around chimp habitat. And when I flew over the tiny Gombe National Park, which was once part of the great equatorial forest belt across Africa, by, and that was in 1960, and in 1970 it was part of this forest. But by the late 80s, I was shocked to look from a small plane to see a tiny island of forest, and all around were bare hills. And the people there were too poor to buy food from elsewhere. Their land was over-farmed and infertile. They were cutting down the trees to survive. And that's when I realized if we don't find ways for them to make a living without destroying the environment, we can't save chimps, forests, or anything else. And so we began this, what we call Takari, take care, Takari. And it's now throughout the chimp range in Tanzania and in six other African countries. And it's totally holistic. And it includes stuff like scholarships so girls can stay in school beyond puberty We provide family planning information. We don't give it, but the local people do. Mm. And they know that a way out of poverty is a good education. They can't afford anymore to educate eight or ten children. Mm. So they love family planning. And, you know, so it's all of these problems interrelated with each other Mm. and thinking it through. And there's an awful lot of problems. Sometimes you think you've solved a problem and you have but it's created another one which you didn't even think about. But despite that, and also despite, you know, you've lived through a lot of of dark times or times that have shown humans at their worst, we've concentrated a lot now on the sort of destruction to the environment. But, you know, you talk in the book, you've lived through the the wars, the Holocaust, Cold War, you know, the genocides. And what's so fascinating is that you've maintained this generally positive optimistic but hopeful above all spirit this indomitable human spirit you possess it in spades i think you you still maintain despite all of that that we all possess it so i wonder if you could explain what it is and uh, why you think that well i think you know there are some people who stand out as icons this i call it when you tackle seemingly impossible problems and won't give up 
and very often succeed. And, you know, you could pick people like Nelson Mandela, who tackled apartheid, that evil regime in South Africa, and people like Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, you can think of many icons out there. But then look around at just people where you live. You may find somebody who's migrated from a country where he and his family lost everything to war, or these days increasingly from change of climate where they can no longer practice their old way of life, and they can arrive in a country with nothing, and yet somehow they build up a life for themselves. They're probably greeted with discrimination and hostility. We know all about that in the UK. Some of what goes on is, is so shocking, I don't like to think about it. But when they get through that, you go and bother to talk to them. They smile at you and they've made a life for themselves and they haven't given up. And that's one reason why I was so angry when Richard Dawkins took out uh, advertising space on London buses with a message which was something like, if you believe in God, you're stupid. And you think of somebody who's lost everything coming to a new country, not knowing the language, just with their faith. And then they read a message telling them they're stupid. That is, it's, it's almost cruel, isn't it? I mean, you're talking about faith is a really important part of this as well. And the, the links between hope and faith. And I know you say in the book that hope and faith are two very different things. But you talk in depth um, in your conversations about something that you feel does, I think, spur on your hope and to sort of enhance it, which is an idea that there is a, a sort of outside force and a spiritual power. And I wonder how much that does reinforce your hope. Well, I think it does. And I think, you know, some people who are part of an organized religion, I think that that faith does give them hope hope for the future, even if it's future in another world. They have some kind of hope which helps them to live in this life. But for me, when I was out in the rainforest especially, I had this very strong spiritual connection with some, I don't know, I call it creator, call it whatever. And it just felt to me that there was something out there that had created the wonder on this planet. And we hear, oh, we know, we've understood. It's the Big Bang that created the universe. So, probably did. But what created the Big Bang, please? What was before the Big Bang? And what has really, really thrilled me is that recently, uh, more and more of the top scientific minds have come out saying, absolutely, there is intelligence behind the creation of the universe. And... Of course, Albert Einstein, who's one of the great minds, he, he talked about that as well. But I've had experiences in my life, as are explained in the book, which make me believe, you know, that there definitely is something on a different, what do I call it, a different plane, a different level, something which is spiritual, which we can't really understand when we're living in this life. And that's why perhaps the ultimate hope is a, somebody asked you about your next great adventure and you said that dying was your next great adventure. And I feel like the most hopeful and inspirational things that, of all the things you say in the book that feel hopeful, it, it's almost that sentiment of, of banishing the fear and, and being more hopeful about the end or, and not the end, as you say. 
It was really funny because I was asked this question with an audience um, in U.S. about, I don't know, 10,000 people maybe. It was a huge auditorium. And I was asked that question. I'd never been asked before. What's your next great adventure? Well, a few years ago, I would have said, oh, going to the wild mountainous forests of Papua New Guinea, unexplored. But that's not for me now. I mean, I'm 87, nearly 88, and that won't happen. So I thought for a bit, and I said, well, dying. And it was dead silence, a sort of gasp, horror, and then a few nervous titters. And so I said, well, when you die, there's either nothing, which, well, fine, it's nothing, or there's something. And I said, I just happen to feel, because of experiences I've had, that there's something. And if there is, what greater adventure can there be than finding out what that something is? And the woman who asked the question, she came up to me afterwards, she said, Dr. Goodall, thank you. I never, ever like to think about dying, but now I think of it differently. So I realized that what we fear isn't the actual death, it's the dying process, which can be so horrible. We began this conversation. I, I'm wary I'm going to have to relinquish all the many things I want to ask you and move over because, of course, the audience um, who are listening in will have their questions. But I just wonder, we, we began talking about how you're at home because, of course, the pandemic of the last year or so um, has, has kept you from traveling. And, of course, it's been tragic in so many ways, not least showing how what can happen when we exploit animals in this way and people know the most likely causes of it or the the given causes of it but ultimately does this feel like a time of hope and the fact that there are more people listening and seeing it as as a moment to come together and create change when you talk about disaster and danger often do bring out that indomitable human spirit don't they yeah definitely and there's no question that that awareness has grown And the problem was too many people were feeling helpless in the face of the problems. So that, you know, this is my message to give people hope. To Hope meaning take action and then you will become more hopeful. And so there's a much greater awareness that we brought the pandemic on ourselves by our disrespect of animals. We have brought climate change and loss of biodiversity on ourselves people are beginning to understand that even if you live in the middle of a city, you still are part of the natural world and you depend on it. Clean air, clean water, food, shelter, everything. But we depend on healthy ecosystems. And a healthy ecosystem has this amazing tapestry of interrelated organisms. And as they go, it's like pulling threads from the tapestry until it hangs in tatters. And then the ecosystem will collapse, and it's happening. But when you realize that we can turn things around, that we still have a window of time, and if we get together, we absolutely can turn things around. And we know so many, I mean, some of the scientific innovations, some of the way people are behaving, some of the stories. And I found when I went to Tanzania two years ago, We had a big Roots and Shoots gathering, all the different groups from around the city of Dar es Salaam getting together to share projects and, you know, talk to each other. And at the end, they came together. They were all standing up and saying, together we can, meaning we can save the world. And I said, yes, we can. But will we? Do we have the will? 
can we take the steps necessary? And they thought about it. And then they got together and they said, together we can, together we will. And so I started doing that in the lectures I was giving, getting 10,000 people jumping to their feet and saying, together we can, together we will. Even a whole lot of CEOs and government people in Davos, imagine. <laughs> That's exactly where I wanted to end. It's like you can see my question notes, Jane, because I wanted you to explain exactly that, that in Davos they were jumping up singing, you know, together we can, together we will. And I think at a wonderful music concert, you say it brought tears to your eyes. You were at a concert in, in Germany, was it? Oh, the one talking about the, the species disappearing one by one. But they all chanted with you, together we can, together we will. Oh, no, oh, no. That, yes, that was, that was um, a big, second biggest music festival in Europe. And there were about 18,000 people there. And yes, they all yelled it out, together we can, together we will. And that's the spirit we have to, you know, just like Churchill did in World War II. He got the British people to say, we will not be defeated. And basically, there was no hope back then. I was here in the south of England. We were protected from the might of the Germans by a little bit of scaffolding and barbed wire. We weren't prepared. We weren't prepared for war. And their, their armed forces were powerful. But we had Churchill inspiring this, we will not be defeated. Of course, we're in a very, um, this, this is, feels like a, a very, good evening to be having this conversation. I mean, there would never be a bad evening to be having it, but um, green issues are right across the agenda, particularly here at the moment in the UK. We have the Conference of the Parties starting very imminently. Do you feel a sense of hope about meetings and things like that where governments come together? Do, do you feel a sense of hope when you look to that? Well, I really do feel that many of the people who will be taking part truly, truly understand that we have to do something. I mean, Paris was really disappointing. They all came together. They all made agreements. They all said that they would reduce their emissions to a certain level. I don't think a single country actually lived up to what it promised. And, you know, the fear is that COP26 will have the same sort of result. But I, I really... I just have this feeling that there really, really is more awareness of the fact that we are, we are facing the destruction of our own species if we don't get together. And uh, unfortunately, some nations seem disinclined to take part in doing their share. But I think Britain is more solidly committed to really, really trying to make change. And the European Union certainly is. And uh, half of America is, and half of it isn't. <laughs> oh, I, I hope so. There's so much to discuss. How could we do this in an hour? Um, I'm going to ask some of the audience questions, and Bess just is asking about the four, just to articulate. We've been through them, but the four pillars of hope, if you could just um, outline what they are, one, two, three, four. Okay, one, two, three, four. One is the human intellect, because we are beginning to understand, we are beginning to come up with innovative solutions. We are beginning to think about our own ecological footprints and think how we can solve some of the problems. Two, the resilience of nature. Like I described flying over Gombe and the little tiny park was surrounded by bare hills. Because of our Takari program, there's no bare hills anymore. The trees have come back. 
places we've utterly destroyed can once again support life. Animals on the brink of extinction can be and have been given another chance. Then thirdly, there's the power of young people. Once they know the problems and we listen to their voices and we empower them to take action, not aggression, not violence, positive action. And then finally, this indomitable spirit, the people who tackle what seems impossible and succeed. It's interesting, you just mentioned that about to take action, but not to be uh, sort of extreme. And someone has asking what you feel about those who are quite militant and perhaps aggressive about delivering messages of the need of positive change for the environment. Does it sometimes mean that the way they do it means that the message gets lost? I think sometimes it's counterproductive. I think right at the beginning of all these various movements, you know, way back in the time of the suffragettes with uh, Mrs. Pankhurst and the, the others tying themselves to the railings of Parliament. You know, I think at the beginning, um, some of these, but not the violence, not the violence. I mean, animal experimentation is horrible. It's cruel. It's awful. But when the animal rights people go in and raid a lab and let all the animals out, they let out the mink in the UK who've been roaming the countryside and multiplying and killing all our native animals. And so we just need to be, you know, my way has never been uh, violence. It's always been trying to reach the heart. Because mm. I think only when you reach the heart and people change from within, will you get real change, real commitment to change. Mm. Absolutely. And you mention a lot in the book about the importance of speaking to the heart, the importance of stories rather than facts and figures. It's it's so interesting and so true. And perhaps something also that a, that a woman, as we started at the beginning with empathy and patience, brings to this issue um, in, in spades. Um, somebody asked, children can be great motivators, as you have illustrated in your story during this conversation. Is there a program we can put in place in all schools globally in which children, young and old, can take part in action and consequently involve their parents and neighborhoods and beyond? Or is there something already out there? I have a feeling I know what you're going to say. (laughs) (laughs) Roots and shoots, anybody can start a group. We like you to join and register because we like to share what you're doing and bring you into this global family. But um, we've had, we've had uh, we had a grandmother group. It was four grandmothers and their daughters and the grandchildren, and they all got together and did did projects, you know, to make the world a better place. And uh, so we've had so many examples of young people, children changing their parents and their grandparents. And I gave that one story of the CEO in Singapore, whose daughter really pushed him to make change. And so anybody, we have roots and shoots in some um, retirement homes. We have roots and shoots in some prisons. It doesn't matter. It can grow anywhere, but it has to be animals, people, environment, all three. Now, somebody asks, and they always, somebody always asks this of, of the guests, but it's very interesting to hear from you what you are, if you have indeed the time, given how much you are doing, what you are reading at the moment. <laughs> well, um, Actually, the last book I read, and I read, I, I managed to get through about a few sentences in the day because there isn't time to read. Um, but the last book I read was uh, a book 
by the arborist, you know, arbor-like tree, arborist. And she discovered what she calls the eight continent, and it's up in the treetops. She invented the entire way of learning about the, uh, the, the life that never comes to the ground. It just lives up in the tops of the trees and how important that is. And the other one was one somebody sent me uh, called Cult. I think it's a young woman who was brought up in a cult, the children of God. And it's chilling and an, an amazing book which explains what it's like to grow up in this abusive society. Another question comes from somebody who, who comes back to the topic we were talking about a little bit about animal uh, products. And um, they said, what more can be done to educate the public about how animal products are produced to raise more awareness of how to buy food ethically? I mean, it's a very difficult and, and, and needs a lot of thought, but I wonder your thoughts. Well, we do have information out there in our Roots and Shoots program. There's a, an awful lot of groups of, of young people who are learning about this. And I never, you know, I don't like being dogmatic. It's not good to say to children, you can't eat meat, it's bad. You don't say that. But you can very gently and quietly talk about, I mean, I, I show people, children, a photograph of, I don't, do you know about Pig Casso? Not Picasso the artist, but Pig Yes, Casso. yes, I've seen it. it was, it's in your book, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is in my book, even a picture. Hmm. So, that pigs, pigs are as intelligent as dogs. I tell stories about, you know, the different things that, that animals have done, the farm animals. And then, then I think mostly the children themselves decide they don't want to eat meat. But there are now alternatives to meat. If you can't bear not to eat meat, there's meat alternatives derived from animal tips. Uh, I think it's from stem cells or something. Can't remember, but no animals are killed, and once they get the culture, that's it. They don't ever need it again, like yogurt, I suppose. And um, you know, but to move towards a plant-based diet, that's the key thing. And when you realise the huge amounts of environment destroyed to grow the grain, the fossil fuel that's used to get the grain to the animals, the animals to the abattoir, the meat to the table when you realize how much water is used to change vegetable to animal protein, when you realize that they are responsible for about at least a quarter of the most dangerous greenhouse gas, which is methane. Uh, you know, when, when children learn that. Um, somebody asked what areas of study you would recommend a young vet student who has Tanzanian grandparents interested in wild animals and conservation to get into. Well, there are various programs in various universities now that do, I couldn't tell you, but it's all online. Um, there really are, especially for people wanting to be wildlife veterinarians. And I know mostly the ones in the US because we work with them, but there have to be some in the, in the UK as well. Um, thank you for, for that. Now, I, I, as I said at the beginning, when we when we started talking to you, that I promised that I would let you go by 7.30 because that's the end of the event. And Jane, I know the reason we have to let you go is one of the things that comes up in the book is that when you're thanking everyone and your team and the support that you have, you also give a little thanks to something else you say that it could not be done without. And that is a nightly ritual of a little tot of whiskey. That's right. A little touch of whiskey to, for my voice. It works for your voice. 
And mum and I had this little thing. She couldn't drink wine and she couldn't drink water. But so whiskey was her little tipple, a little tot each night. So I would join her when I was here. And we had a thing that wherever I was in the world at seven o'clock, um, we would raise a glass to each other and uh, drink to each other's health. So I will drink to the health of everybody. And with that, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. Uh, we'll raise our, I'll raise my imaginary whiskey to you. And thank you so much to everyone uh, who signed in as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I thank you all. And I thank you too. Uh, you've been a fabulous interviewer. Some people, you know, they literally don't know what they're talking about. And they're the most stupid waste of time interviews. But this wasn't. And I will just say goodbye to everybody with, you know, chimpanzees have a distance call to identify themselves. So I think a good ending of this hour would be the chimpanzee distance greeting call, which is... And on top of that, I wish you all would join me and say, together we can, together we will. Please. Jane, thank you so much. We will all be doing that. Everyone at home is doing that in their houses very loudly. Good. Good. I'm sure they are. Bye and thank you. This week's episode starred Jane Goodall and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producers were Esme Bright and myself, and our editor is John Doughty. This November, we're hosting a series of free livestream events with the World Wildlife Fund, starring some of the country's most influential environmentalists and climate scientists. If you'd like to find out more, visit us at howtoacademy.com and sign up to the newsletter. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.